Good morning. Uh, we're glad that you're here this morning. We are continuing our journey into this sermon series called Rediscovering Jesus, and we're so glad that you're here. Uh, some, some things up front. Um, to me, a good story, a good story, a good movie is, is one in which it takes you to a certain place where you feel an enormous amount of tension in the middle because you're offended, because you're bothered, because you're confused, because you're, you know. And a good story will take you to that place where you're like, resolve this Give answers. And then they take you a little further. And then finally the resolution comes. You're like, oh, that's a good story. If I do a good job today, that's what you'll feel. Actually, that's what you should be feeling every Sunday. But you don't because I'm a terrible storyteller or communicate, whatever you want to call it. But here's why I say that. Because the front end of the sermon will get some of you to that place where you're like, I want to walk out of here. I can't, I can't take this anymore. I don't want to hear this stuff. Ever feel like that? That's what a good movie will do to you. You're sitting there going, what the heck? But if you leave too early, oh boy, without the resolution, you may miss something. So a warning, I guess, and maybe an encouragement, okay? We, we are on this sermon series called Rediscovering Jesus. And, and here's what we've been saying. We've been saying that if you get to know the real Jesus, you'll be offended. You'll be offended. You won't sit there and go, nice fella. Good guy. Good teacher. No, you'll be offended. Now, after last week, I talked to a handful of people and I said, I was actually surprised when I said, are, people, are there people who are still not offended yet? And a number of people rose their hands. I was like, hey, I'm doing a bad job. And then somebody said to me, said, Peter, maybe it's the semantics of what you mean when you say, are you offended? Because we're so conditioned to think of being offended this way. When we think somebody's offensive, we think of a racist. We think of a mean, wicked person. We think of someone who's so arrogant, so full of themselves, etc. We're like, oh my gosh, they're offended. But we don't normally think of offense this way. If somebody came to you and said, I'm God, here's what that means. Our relationship, it's got to change. I can give you anything, but I can demand anything. Your life, not your own. Bought at a price. I have, I have authority and rights to every single part of your being. Every single part. You don't get to decide. You don't get to choose on your own. I get to decide. I get to choose. If somebody comes up and does that in our culture, we don't sit there and go, boy, you're, you're challenging me. Our response is, who the heck do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? We're offended. And the point of the sermon series is you and I have to get to that place. Because if we're hearing, oh, that's challenging, we're not hearing him. Because here's the thing. I do believe that there's some of us who truly are not offended because every single part of your being and soul is totally and completely yielded and surrendered to God. So that when God says go, you go. When God says stop, you stop. There is no me. It's all about you, God. You are completely and totally at the center of where... If that's you, absolutely, you're saying, amen, brother, that's me. But for the rest of us, who in our day-to-day lives are like, uh-uh, no, some here, some there. No, that's scary. That's threatening. Uh-uh-uh. That's not just challenging. That's so for the rest of us, this sermon series brings us to that place where God's saying, are you feeling what I'm saying to you? Are you feeling what I'm saying to you? That's what God is saying. Now, 
The gr- sort of the groundwork or foundation was found in Matthew 11 on this whole sermon series on the identity of Jesus. And in Matthew 11, you don't have to turn your Bibles. I'll just go, go, go there and, 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 and we see this interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist via his disciples. And John is confused. John is struggling. John is at that point of going, oh, this is John the Baptist. The forerunner to Jesus. And he sends his disciples to ask, are you the one? Are you really who you say you are? And Jesus sends this answer. He says, verse 6, Blessed is the man who does not take offense at me. And ASB. And what he was saying was, blessed are those who hear really what I'm saying and feel the offense but don't take offense. In other words, they're not walking away going, forget you. If that's what you say, I'm so offended, I don't want to deal with you. And the reason why John was offended was for two reasons. The claims of Christ and the cross of Christ, remember? What was Jesus claiming? Well, Jesus said things like this. Uh, verse 27 of the very chapter in Matthew 11. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Now, what was Jesus declaring there? Well, half of that is something that a lot of religious leaders and philosophers have declared throughout history. They said, I have knowledge of God. I know the way to God. I can show you the way to God. Come follow me. Come follow my teachings. Do the things that I've laid out. And you can meet God. You can find God. Lots of people have said that. But Jesus says something that no other, no other leader, philosopher, religious ever said in the history of mankind. And that is the second part of this, which is, um, let's see. There's only one person that can know me. You see, there's only, if you want to know me, Jesus says, you have to be eternal because I'm eternal. So the only one that can know me is someone who's also eternal. Uh, I'm infinite. So the only one that can even grasp who I am is someone who also has to be infinite, you see. I'm all-powerful. So the only one that can fully grasp who I am is someone who's also a powerful. And that's why Jesus says, no one but the Father knows me. Jesus says something that even John the Baptist couldn't believe, like any other good first century Jew. You see, first century Jews were very different from their pagan neighbors. They would die for the fact that they could not believe a human being could be God, that God was transcendent. They couldn't be a human figure. And so for John to hear that Jesus was declaring, I'm God, the eternal, infinite, the great I am, he began to be troubled. If you believe that Jesus is God, the reason why it'll trouble us or offend us is because it changes everything, see? A relationship with him is all-consuming. Relationship with him affects every single sphere area of our lives. Relationship with him, it means that every single nook and cranny of our lives is under his kingship or lordship. He comes and says, I can give you anything, and I have, but I can demand anything. It's not about your goals anymore. It's not about your dreams. It's not about what you want and what you've said for you. It's about what I want. Is it in line with what I want for you? See, if we say that Jesus is a good moral teacher, as I said, we're making a mockery out of history. If Jesus was a good moral teacher, went around saying, everybody love each other, here are some things you should do, we're making a mockery out of history because why would anybody want to crucify and kill a nice person? Why would they crucify Mr. Rogers? Jesus didn't go around saying, I'm good, everybody love each other, can we all just all get along? Jesus came and said, I'm God, and that's why they killed him. What does this mean for you? Does he have your all? Does he have your all? Secondly, John was also offended because of the cross of Christ. 
Again, Jesus, unlike any other leader, didn't come and say, I'm going to bring salvation and strength, meaning I was a good person, great leader. I have all these incredibly insightful teachings. Do them and you shall live. Do them and you shall be saved. Jesus Christ comes along and says, I have news. You're not that smart. You're not that strong. You're not that brilliant. That's why I had to come in weakness, not in strength. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. And Jesus comes along and says, the ones that will be receptive to the gospel is one who can say, God, I am not strong enough. I am not smart enough. I am not brilliant enough. And that's when Jesus comes and says, that's why I lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And to our modern sensibilities, that's offensive. We live and breathe in a culture that says the strong survive. We live and breathe in a culture that says the brilliant get ahead. We live and breathe in a culture where it's competitive, cutthroat. You got to stand out. And Jesus Christ came and died on a cross. Ultimate form of shame and humiliation. The God, son of God. Why? To say to the world, salvation via me comes. Not through your work, not through your effort, not through what you can do. Jesus Christ didn't come and say, let me show you the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus Christ didn't come and say, let me show you the way to be righteous. He said, I am righteousness. This, year, uh, well, this week, I uh, got some emails from some folks you know, in our church. It was so helpful. I can't get through all of them, but I wanted to just read a portion because this is what people like you and your friends are going through in this community as they wrestle with this truth as he wrestled with this Christianity that Jesus talked about. Um, let me see here. Oh, I ran out of time this morning, so I'm going to just kind of boom, 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 go through. One person writes this. Uh, am I connecting with the sermon series? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole point is that we're saying that Jesus isn't who we may, who we may think he is, right? I mean, we collectively need to uproot our prior perceptions of Jesus and repaint this picture, which may take more time for some, If we refuse to do that, we miss the whole point of the entire series. Maybe that's why we're not offended yet. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, my inner self screamed when I realized that if I believe that Jesus is what he said he is, that he can demand anything. It's completely outside my, maybe human nature to yield my will to someone or something else. Especially if you're single. I love this insight. Because I don't really answer to anyone about where I go, about what I do, or what I buy. And it's really hard to tell myself that my desire and my will doesn't mean squat sitting next to God's. The fact that Jesus' message shatters my worldview, perception of self, is offensive to me. But until I struggle with the reality that all I am is not, I cannot build my trust in the one who called himself the one I am, the great I am. Here's another email. Um, I'm not offended by the fact that I have wrong perceptions of Christ. Rather than sit and beat myself up, I'd rather fix my perceptions and be better off. I used to be angry at at God for the injustice of the world and what I thought were injustices in my life, but I'm not angry anymore. See, part of it might be that I'm so tired of fighting God. Can anybody relate? Yeah. I'm so tired of fighting God. Peter, I can't do it anymore. Why should I be afraid of God? Why should I be ashamed of my very human way of relating to Christ? Shouldn't I just be happy that Christ loves me and wants to make me understand him better? Now, what you're probably thinking is, you're not being honest with yourself. And maybe you're right. Do I understand what I'm in for? Probably not. It's like when we ask God to give us a revival in our lives, and then he does, and we curse the day we were born. (laughs) You know what's so funny? 
After this morning, another young lady came up to me and said, Peter, God is uh, starting a revival in my soul. And it scares me. And I looked at her and said, you should be scared. <laughs> That's it. That's all I said. <laughs> the Job example, made, I know I didn't do that. Come on. I'm not that mean. No, I said this. I said, you know what? I said, just sit there. Just sit in that discomfort. Because God is ready to do some amazing things. And when God does, But it's scary. It's like when we ask God to give us a revival. Oh, I read that. Okay, the Job example made sense. He was a good guy, nice guy, so deserved that. But Peter, I can see so much injustice in my job every day that I just understand that I'm no entitled to a good life. I'm not entitled to health. I'm not entitled to wealth. I'm not entitled to happiness. That's profound. Because many of us, our biggest battle is even getting just to that place where we say, God, I'm not entitled to anything, am I? Even two years ago, I would have scoffed at this comment I just made, but it's simply true. Christ longs to have me, all of me, whatever it takes. Hmm. Um, Here's another one. Um, I love this email, actually. Uh, Hello, I've always considered Jesus to be radical in his approach to teaching and revealing truth about who he is and what the kingdom of God is. I'm not offended by the thought of Jesus as God who deserves full worship, a life of sacrifice, and complete obedience I grew up knowing the angry Jesus that was always disappointed in me and would ransack my spiritual temple every Sunday. Anybody relate to that? Yeah. Of course, this left me at the altar repenting and getting on his good side once a week. The always on time, prayer answering, wine making Jesus is a foreign concept to me. If he was making wine, it was only to show his power. Jesus declaring that he wants all of me is not offensive. It's kind of assumed. I mean, he's God, and he died for me to see his reign in all of creation, including my life. Here's part of the reason why I read this email. Ready? This is why community, small groups, and being in intimate relationships with people that you worship with is important and critical. You do not see all the facets of God on your own. Your cultural upbringing, your education, who you are, your family, has shaped your view of God, just like me. Jesus is a diamond. He's multifaceted. You can't see all of him just with one angle. And unless you are in community with people who are showing radically different sides of Jesus, you will not know the real Jesus. Does that make sense? So you need to be in a small group, fellowship, intimate community of people who will challenge and stretch your view of Jesus. Some of us, we connect with the radical temple cleansing Jesus. He's God. He's authoritative. He demands it. We're like, amen, brother. And then there are people in our community group who are like, oh, I struggle with that. I grew up with the winemaking Jesus. He's nice. He answers prayers. He's good. He comes through. And you need to hear that perspective. But if you're the winemaking Jesus loving type, you also need to hear people who remind you. Do you understand what the point is? Yeah? Are you in community with people who are giving you this multifaceted, beautiful picture of Jesus? Or are you just seeing one side of who he is? If you hang around with people that look like you, talk like you, dress like you, listen to your music, use this too, eat the food that you do, and furthermore, have the same cultural upbringing as well as religious theological upbringing, I know I included a ton of things. You only have one view of Jesus. If you're just coming here on Sundays listening to me, you're only going to have one view of Jesus. Are you in community with people? 
Also, I was struck by the constant mindfulness of Jesus, knowing that what he was sent to do. Oh, I'm sorry. The funny thing is that I can relate to Jesus now more than ever. For example, Sunday you mentioned the way Jesus felt seeing the ritualistic way the Jews made sacrifices in the temple. I always saw that in the passage, to which I, if you were here last week, I'm like, way to go, man. That's the, he, he, the whole thing. Okay, anyway. Um, I always saw this in the passage and was usually told that I missed the obvious message. This is Jesus claiming the temple, and this is what he was told, that it was about tithing. And that it was about selling things inside the church. So he says here, that's why in our church, bake sales were always held outside so God wouldn't get mad. <laughs> so what I'm reminded, you know, it's so silly. I mean, what we do, what, what we do to... <laughs> the question is, who is this Jesus to you? Who is this Jesus to me? And are we willing to be honest enough to go to the difficult, hard places where we see this beautiful, multifaceted son of God looking at you and looking at me and going, do you see who I am? Do you see who I am? Turn your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7, okay? Mark chapter 7. Again, remember the uh, little uh, note up front about not leaving early, you guys? Please hang in there. Because if you feel that tension, you're, you're following, you're tracking me. Mark chapter 7, we come to another very controversial passage and as a result, controversial view of Jesus, perspective of Jesus. It's a story of the Syrophoenician woman. Let's look at this together. Verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek Gentile, born in Siren, Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And then we come to this verse that we just can't get around, verse 27. First, <laughs> I'm sorry. Mark is over here, he's going, oh. What did that mean? Oh, what does that mean? Does that mean you're excited about this verse? Okay. First let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. I've read a lot of commentaries on this passage and some commentators who feel so uncomfortable with this Jesus calling this woman a dog. That, that, that they said this is what was happening. As Jesus was saying this, you know, he kind of had a twinkling in his eye, you know. So it was kind of one of these. Let the children eat first. And then the dogs can get there. Let the children eat first. You get the inside joke? And no. There's no twinkling of an eye like ease the tension. You know. No. Jesus is very matter of fact. Let the children eat first. Can't throw the bread to the dogs, to which some of us right now want to pack up our stuff and leave because you're saying, see, I knew it. Jesus is offensive. He's a racist. He's exclusive. That's because we're not understanding the whole passage. Let's continue. Look at verse 28. Yes, Lord. Huh? See, don't, don't whoo, breeze by that. See your response? Jesus says, I am calling you a dog. And, and no, uh-uh, you know, no. No, she says, I'm calling you a dog. 
And she says, who the heck do you think you are? You racist pig. I, she, what is she? she says, yes, Lord. She agrees. What? And you're thinking, uh, low self-esteem, low self-worth. She's one of those women who already came needing this. And so Jesus could have called her anything. And she would have been like, uh-huh. <laughs> this woman is a model of strength and faith. And you'll see why. But even the dogs, she says, under the table, eat the children's crumbs. And it blows Jesus away. He says, for such a reply, you can go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. What the heck is going on here? In order to understand this passage, you got to understand the entire chapter of Mark. What do I mean? The entire chapter 7 gives us a background. So you can't read the certain passages and take it out. Here's what happens in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. Okay? Jesus has a knockdown, drag-out fight with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. People who really were racist. And the fight was over ritual cleanliness, ritual loss of purity. See, the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, had had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws, okay, that they abided by that kept them ritually pure, ceremonially clean. And it involved things like, got to wash your hands a certain way before you eat. You got to dress a certain way. You got to wash your pots a certain way and so on. You can eat what you can't eat. They had hundreds and hundreds of laws, by the way, that are not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, how did these come about? They actually originated in the Old Testament this way. God told the nation of Israel, you're set apart. You're set apart as my holy nation. And so I'm going to give you a list of rules, not because those laws and those rules are banned in themselves, but because they will distinguish you. They will mark you out as being different as my people. Secondly, and more importantly, God set up these laws as a visual aid. What do I mean? As a Jew went to the temple, and before he went into worship with God, there were laws that said you had to clean your hands, you had to offer certain things as a, listen, visual aid, visual reminder that you're going to meet with God. You're going to meet with the Holy One. You're going to meet with the creator of the world. And that you needed to do, check yourself and go, where am I? I've got sins. I'm morally unclean. I need to be cleansed. And so as a visual sign, reminder to who God is and who you were, you had these ceremonial cleansing rules. Here's the problem. The Pharisees and teachers of the law didn't understand them as visual aids. They understood them as having effect in and of themselves. In other words, it's not about your heart. It's because you wash your hands, now you're clean before God. It's not about your heart, but it's because you're wearing certain things and doing certain things, now you're acceptable to God. Rules, regulations. Now, so here's what happened by the time of Jesus came. If that's the case, then in order to make sure that they had right standing with God, they had developed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other rules on top of to sort of fence yourself. So that's why the Gentiles, the Jews said Gentiles are unclean, impure. Why? They don't do the things that we do. But we're going to take it a step further. To make sure we don't get unclean, we can't even touch them. To make sure we're unclean, when they walk this side of the street, we're going to walk on the other side. To make sure we're not going to be unclean because after all, contact with them will make you unclean. You see what? So they developed these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules on top of because they thought that in and of themselves it had salvific cleansing effect. Now, a little sidebar here. 
For those of us that grew up in very Pharisaic, legalistic, rules-oriented Christianity that we ran away from, can anybody say amen? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. That's a cop-out to real Christianity. It's a co- legalism is a cop-out. Legalism makes Christianity easier, not harder. Here's why. Legalism, legalism allows you the freedom to not do heart investigation. Legalism frees you up to save you from the difficult and painful task of going, where's my motive? Where's my attitude? See, we think legalism is, oh, that Christianity is hard. Legalism, look, Legalistic Christianity, if you're just a little bit disciplined, you can do it. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. It brings the bar down on Christianity. Jesus comes along and he says, guess what? I'm going to blow that right out of the water. It's not about what you do with your hands. It's not about what you eat that makes you unclean. It's your heart. It's your heart. It's your heart. And the Pharisees went, uh-uh, uh-uh. Jesus said, It's your heart, it's your heart, it's your heart. You know what he was doing? He was directly challenging the very thing that they found their identity. This is the reason why, sidebar, why legalistic rules govern kinds of Christianity becomes judgmental. That's the only way for you to know I'm okay. If you look at other people who don't do what you do and go, see, I'm a good Christian. It cannot help but be judgmental because it's how it gives you identity. And that's where the Pharisees were. Now, Jesus comes along and says, it's not about what you eat, you, 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 Pharisees. It's not about what you do to yourself. It's your heart condition. It's a matter of your heart. And you know that they never heard him. Now, it's in that context that Mark chapter 7 verse 24 happens. Now, you have to have that background because if you don't, you're going to misread this passage. Are you tracking so far? So let's go back to this passage and look at it. With that background, who is this woman? This woman, her problems, she has many problems. It says, the Bible says, her little daughter. The word little there doesn't mean young or baby. The word little, little, it means beloved, dear, precious. In other words, this daughter is precious, dear. It means everything to this mother. And she's demon-possessed. And so what does she do? She comes to Jesus, and the Bible says she fell at his feet. And that was more than just respect, like, you're a holy guy, you're rabbi, respect. It's, it, it, was, it was showing profound grief. When she fell at his feet, she's saying, Jesus, my daughter, my daughter, my daughter. Profound grief. And, and when Jesus, and when the Bible says that she would not, and she begged, she begged, and she begged. The, the word there is, is in a progressive verb, meaning that it was repeated. In other words, she didn't stop begging. She would not stop bothering Jesus. She would not stop asking him, be quiet, Jesus, my daughter. Be quiet, Jesus, my daughter. She is persistently saying, I will not leave this place until you hear me. In that context, Jesus says, gotta go there. Let the children eat first. For you can't feed the father's bread or the father's food to the dogs. Two things. Number one, culturally, she would not have been offended. Why? Number one, she's a Gentile. She is familiar with the surroundings of her culture. She knows about the animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And by the way, the Jews really did refer to Gentiles as dogs, as a derogatory term, as a derogatory way, okay? 
But what we, seldom, what we often forget is that Gentiles had their own set of names for Jews too, which I can't repeat in church, okay? So it's not as if the Jews were dogs to Gentiles, and Gentiles were like, ah, oh no. The Gentiles had venom of their own that they churn, returned the favor. So culturally, here's another reason why she wouldn't be surprised. She knows that Jesus is a Jewish holy man. He's a rabbi. The thing that she would expect is approaching Jesus and her, his disciples and people saying, Gentile, woman, get away from him. Get away from him. She would have never in a million years expected, if you were culturally, Jesus to go, come. What is it? Even speak to her in public. Even engage her in public. She would have culturally not have been shocked and offended. But that's not the point of the story. Because Jesus says, you can't feed the children's bread. To the, what is he talking about? Here's the key that unlocks this passage. Jesus is not making a racist statement, but rather a theological statement. Say that once more. Jesus in this passage, unlike what we think, is not making a race. He can't be making a racist statement. Why? He's just spent verses 1 to 23 going against the Pharisees and knock out, drag out fight because they're saying, we're superior. We're accepted by God because we're Jews. And Jesus is going, it's not about your pedigree. It's not about your ethnicity. It's your heart. It's your heart. It's your heart. And she's going to turn right around and make a racist statement? No. Jesus is not making a racist statement, but a theological one. What kind of a theological statement is Jesus making here? Here it is. Here's the picture. In a Greco-Roman household, like my, I grew up in an Asian family. This is how we ate. The grandfather, if he was alive, would sit at the head of the table. If he wasn't alive, the father, whoever head of the table, would sit at the table. The food would come first to them. And all of us children sat, you know, on the side, waiting. You know, it wasn't like... Hey, food! Everybody passed it around. It wasn't like that. It came to the father or grandfather. They had their portion, and then they distributed the food to the rest of the family. So in a real and profound sense, the children ate the father's food. The children ate the father's bread. Okay? That's how they ate. In this context, in the Greco-Roman world, they had dogs. They were household pets. There were stray dogs too, but household pets. Now, unlike maybe some of us in the way we grew up in our culture, dogs weren't Welcome to the dinner table to sit with the rest of the family, okay? When dogs jumped on the table, parents would be like, down boy, down boy. And the dog would go down to the table. But here's what happened in a typical dinner setting. When there was food left over, oftentimes that food left over, if you will, went to the dog. Other times, scraps that were from the, from, from, from the bread also fell to the ground. And the dog under the table also helped himself or herself to the bread. So in a real profound sense, think about this. The dog still ate the father's food. Sure, it was lesser, and sure, it was later, but the father's bread, just like the children, was available to the dogs. Now, if Jesus isn't making a racist statement and saying, you don't deserve it because you're a Gentile, and he says, let the children eat first. This is important. Somebody came up to me and said, isn't Jesus talking about the nation of Israel? Children is the nation of Israel, but Jesus is not saying. The only one that can eat the father's bread, the only one that is allowed to the table is if you're a child of God, i.e., you're an Israelite. Why? Because then he is making a racist statement saying, only Jews are allowed. Clearly, Jesus isn't saying that. What is he alluding to? And what is the illusion that this woman connects with? Here it is. When Jesus says, dogs in that culture 
who were unclean. The dogs are not worthy of the Father's bread, Jesus was saying. Not because you're a Gentile, not because of your ethnicity, not because of your pedigree, but the disease that has infected all of humanity called sin has infected you. The disease called sin that has made a mess of all of humanity, life apart from God, life on your own, life of individualism, has also infected you, my daughter. And therefore, you are unclean. And here's the powerful thing. You ready? She doesn't say, how dare you? She says, yes, Lord. Do you know what she was saying? Jesus, I'm not worthy to be a child at the table eating the father's food. You know that and I know that. But this is so powerful. There's enough grace on that table even for me. Jesus, and she probably did say with the twinkling of an eye, there's enough mercy on that table even for me. Jesus, there is enough bread, enough love, mercy, and grace of the Father on that table, even for me. Yes, Lord, even for me. To which Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Your life will come together. She is a model for Christians throughout ages. Her story is told again and again throughout every single page of the gospel to do this, to exemplify for us the nature of saving faith. Everybody say saving faith. Saving faith. The nature of faith that releases the love and power of God into your life. Let me say this. You cannot be a Christian or be a life-transformed Christian unless you are in the same shoes as the Syrophoenician woman and your response is hers. What do I mean? The gospel of Jesus Christ and real Christianity comes along and first of all says, I'm not fit for the Father's table. Sit on that. I'm not fit for the Father's table. I'm not worthy to sit at the Father's table. So Jesus is saying, you're unclean. You've been tainted with sin. You're not right before God. Her response isn't, "Pa." Her response is, yes, Lord. I am a sinner. Yes, Lord, I am wicked. Yes, Lord, I am rebellious. Yes, Lord, I am in need of your grace and your mercy. Listen, Christians not. Grew up in church not. You cannot embrace the entirety of the gospel until first and foremost. See, I told you you're going to be uncomfortable, but you got to hang in there. First and foremost, you come to that place, regardless of how spotless your record is, where you can say, I am not worthy to sit at the Father's table. And we don't like that. And we wrestle with that. I wrestle with that. I wrestle with, yes, Lord, that's who I am. I am unworthy. I am unworthy to sit at the table with you. Of course, I don't deserve to be at the table. Of course, I'm unfit for the mercy of God. Of course, I'm unfit for the grace of God. 
And first part of Christianity says, you got to get there. Now, I'm glad nobody's left so far, okay? Because if you're sitting there going, that's a Christianity I grew up with. I hate that. You're making me feel bad. You're making me feel this big. You're making me... Listen. Uh, do you know why? Do you know why the cross and the gospel doesn't transform us? Because we don't get to that uncomfortable place of going, I don't belong at the table. And because we don't get to that place of saying, I don't belong at the table, when Jesus comes and says, I invite you to the table, me, you, me, someone like me, yes, you, then we experience the power and love of God. Do you know why for some of us our Christian lives, can I just be honest, are so... It's because we've never gotten to that place where we're saying, I'm undeserving. And sure, it's maybe our religious background, our parents, and it's the rules. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, child of God before you become that. You've got to get to that place. Let me move on because there's a second part too. The secondly is that gospel Christianity, she doesn't hang her head. She doesn't walk away saying, woe is me, I am unworthy, I am unfit, nobody. What does she do? She turns right on and says, yes, Lord, but mm, you know I know that there's enough mercy at that table for me. Mm, You know I believe that there's enough grace at that table for me, someone like me. Call me a dog. Call me whatever you want to. But you know that there is love and acceptance on that table even for me. To which Jesus says, tremendous faith. Your life will come together. (laughs) Here's the definition of a gospel. You guys ready? Look at this. Look at this. Here's the definition, okay? Next one. Yes. Definition of the God. Say this with me. Everybody read to you. Ready? The gospel of Jesus Christ says you are more sinful and more wicked and more rebellious than you ever dare believe. Stop. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you feel that? Do you feel that? Because unless you feel that, when the power of the cross comes into your life, you're not going to be able to go, oh! Your response will be, oh! But there's a second part. Say it with me, ready? But in Christ, you are more loved and more accepted than you ever dared hope. At the same time, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. This is saving faith. Because of time, I was going to show a movie clip. It's a movie that was made in 1995. Sabrina with Harrison Ford and Julia Ormond. Anybody remember that? Man, I was a huge fan of Julia Ormond. Legends of the Fall. Wonderful actress. Wonder, whatever happened to Julia Ormond? Anyway. Um, <laughs> it's a movie called Sabrina. It's a remake of an old movie. It's a movie... It's one of, if you want to watch it at my house, please come over. You can watch it at my house. It's wonderful. You got to see it. It's a love story. Harrison Ford plays Linus, right? Linus Levy, this, this huge multi-billionaire corporate blah, 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 right? 
And he has a younger brother, David, played by Greg Kinnear, who is his playboy, you know, sort of just wasting the family's fortune. By the way, do you guys realize how much spiritual truth are found in film? It's unbelievable. Let me give this example, right? So what happens? Well, Greg Kinnear is engaged to a woman. And this woman's father happens to be another corporate giant, CEO, okay? And, and then there's going to be a merger between these two companies making billions of dollars. And Harrison Ford is just salivating, going, oh, my brother. Problem is, Greg Kinnear falls for Sabrina, who is the daughter of their chauffeur, a servant girl. If Greg Kinnear doesn't marry this other woman, Elizabeth, this break, this deal can go down. So what does he do? He decides to hijack the whole plan. And so he makes Sabrina, Linus, that is, Harrison Ford's character, fall in love with him. He sweeps her off her feet, and she falls in love with him so that Greg Kinnear's character, his younger brother, can get married, right? But towards the end, Harrison Ford decides to tell her the truth. He tells her that the reason why I've romanced you, the reason why I've all, the, all these things is to make sure that the deal would go down. Now, the trick is, though, that he is really falling for her. But he tells Julia Armand, and Julia Armand's character is crushed. You, you, you me. And she eventually leaves for Paris to leave the whole thing. Harrison Ford's character comes to the realization that he does indeed love Sabrina, a servant girl. He does love her. And so he realizes, I got to go after her. I got to go get her. So there's this wonderful scene where he gets into the chauffeur, who happens to be Sabrina's father. And they're stuck in New York traffic. And her father's in the you know, rear view mirror. He's like, <laughs> As Harrison Ford's characters want to go to the airport. And Harrison Ford looks at in the back seat and he says to Sabrina's father, go ahead, say it. And Sabrina's father says, you don't deserve her. And Harrison Ford says, I know I don't deserve her, but I need her, and I don't need anything. And then there's this scene where he gets out of the car because traffic jam, and so he gets sent to a helicopter, and then he goes out to Concord. He's all sweating, right? And he's on the Concord, and finally they land in Paris, and it's dark. It's one of the beautiful streets of Paris, right? And Julia Ramon's character is checking into a hotel and gets on a cab, and you see in the dim shadows Harrison Ford's character, and he's standing. He's standing in this dark place just looking over at Sabrina, and Sabrina sees him and says, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And Harrison Ford says, eventually, that's because I love you. She says, how can I believe you? How can I trust you? And then you know what he says? He says, Sabrina, you're the only one that can save me. (laughs) Until Harrison Ford came to realize, not only that she was the only one that can save him, but... I'm not fit for you. I don't deserve you. He would never be fit for her. He would never be deserving of her. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes along and says, if you say, I see, Jesus says, you're blind. But if you come and say, I'm blind, Jesus says, now you see. If you come and say, I'm alive, Jesus says, you're condemned. But if you come and say, I'm condemned, Jesus says, rise, you're alive. If you come and say, I want to exalt myself, Jesus says, you're going to be humbled. But if you humble yourself, Jesus says, you're going to be exalted. If you come and say, I'm going to find life, Jesus says, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ says, until you get to that place where you say, I don't deserve you. I'm not fit for you. You'll never sit at the Father's table. Some of you, this is hard for me as a pastor. Can I go there? Is it okay? For some of us, let me say it that way. God is not through words. Jesus is not through words, but circumstances and events showing us that we don't belong at the table. Now, here's what I mean. It can be all the way from those of us that grew up goody two-shoe, did the whole church thing, never scared, blah, blah, blah. And we've entered into that stage in our lives where we've crossed boundaries we thought we would never cross. We've done things we used to judge people for, going, oh, I'll never. And here we are, circumstances events in our lives, where we are being shown our hearts, our cowardice, our fear, our legalism, our judgmentalness, our sinfulness. We are being shown what our true salvation is, whether it be from my moral superiority or to my job. God, through Jesus Christ, events showing us what it is that is our true salvation. And my question to you is, what are you doing about it? Are you wondering, around going, how dare you? I don't deserve this. I deserve a better life. I'm better than them, God. What are you doing? Are you running around cursing God, angry at God, saying, I deserve a better life? Or child of God, have you come to that place where you say, sit at the table to which he says now you're ready second part of the gospel see some of us we grew up in a culture where we think low self esteem what is me I'm such a bad person I'm such a terrible sinner and we think we think that's spiritual our attitude is God Hit me again. I'm still breathing. Hit me again. I'm still breathing. Come on. I just, we think that's Christianity. Listen, let me put it this way. The second part of Christianity, if you really embrace it, there's confident joy. Let me put it this way. It is just as prideful. It's prideful and arrogance to say, God, I will not accept your grace for me. It's, it's just as prideful to say, God, is. let me say that once more. Peter, calm down. Breathe. Okay. It is prideful and arrogant for some of us to go, God, I don't want to admit and I don't want to accept the fact that I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be at the table. I refuse to accept the fact that I'm undeserving. That's pride. But it's just as prideful to say to God, I will not accept the magnitude of your grace. Do you realize how arrogant it is for us to go, who do you think you are, God? I'm so sinful. I'm so dirty. I'm so nasty that not even you can forgive me. Twinkling of an eye, who do you think you are? That's the gospel. Do you get it? Do you get it? It's just as prideful to say, I will not admit that I'm a dog. I want to sit at the table. And if that's what, but it's just as prideful for some of us to walk around with our heads down, to walk around with our spiritual eyes all over the place, to walk around with, because we will not accept the truth that God in Christ forgives you. And that is grace and mercy. It's sufficient for you. No matter who you are, what you've done, Jesus Christ says, come to the table. Me? Yes, you. Come on, jump up. Come to the table. But you don't know what I've done. I've lived in the gates of hell for the last five years. Jesus Christ says, I don't care. In me, you're in. You're in. Do you know what that does? 
I'm sorry. I'm, my, like, my posture is like, all over the place today. Do you know what that does? That gives you joy. It gives you confident joy. You walk around and not, hit me again, Lord, I deserve it. You don't walk around going, I'm the worst sinner in the world. It releases the power and love of God, and the result is confident joy when you realize, Jesus says, I became a dog so you can be a child. I was trampled down under the table so you can sit at the table with the Father. Me? Yes, you. Me? Yeah, you. I wish that I could look at some of you in the eye today, grab you by your shoulders and go, receive the magnitude of his grace. Receive it. But you don't know. I don't care what you've done or where you've been. Jesus says in him, forgiveness, grace, mercy is yours. Is this good news? Hello, is this good news? This is what will free you up. I, I, I stand up here every Sunday. And I see you guys walking through the doors, children of God, who Jesus said, get up, sit at the table. And you're walking around going, oh. And Jesus Christ says, the reason why is, A, you have never been to that place where you're like, I am unfit for you. Only to hear your Savior come to you and go, are you kidding me? Do you know what I've done? I loved you like that. I loved you like that. Nothing will ever change that. Do you know what I want to do this morning as I finish? Because I had some other things I want to talk about, but my heart is just throbbing right now because there are some of you in this room, Christian and not, for whom the cross of Jesus Christ needs to come alive in your heart and only the Spirit can do that. And I want to invite you to come forward, to kneel. At, we've created an altar space. Come and kneel at the cross. If you are one of those people saying, God, I don't know if I fully grasp this. I'm unfit for you. I, I don't know. I'd ask the Spirit of God, open my eyes to help me see. But at the same time, for some of you, and this is maybe mostly for you, if you're sitting there again, because of my pride, not only am I accepting the fact that I'm not unfit, but I will not accept the magnitude of your grace, you need to come and fall at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, I receive. I surrender. For some of us, the cross of Jesus Christ ceases to come alive, releasing his power and his love. Because you don't know confident joy that you can do anything. You can do anything in Christ. He saved you more than just to not sin. He saved you to make a difference in this world. Isn't it about time? It only takes one or two people who are bold enough to go, you know what? I don't care about what people think. I don't care what people say. I'm getting up and I'm going to go and do business with God. And then normally people follow. <laughs> quickly, quickly. We don't have time. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on up. Plenty of space. Come on up. Go to the foot of the cross of your heavenly Father. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on up. Come on up. We're going to wait before we 
Come on to the next portion. Come on up. All the way up. Go all the way up to the cross. Space. I know there's other people out there. Anybody else? Anybody else? Look, if you sat there and as soon as I said it, your heart said, go. But then you thought, no. You need to get up. You know who you are. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. What have you got to lose? You have everything to gain. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. One of you guys, Anna or Mark, can you make sure the candles are out, okay? And just go ahead and take them out. Anybody else? Come on. Anybody else? Our church doesn't do, I know there's two more people out there. So I'm just going to say last time. Anybody else? Anybody else? Come on, Allison. Come on. We'll join you. Come on up. Come on. Come on up. Can you guys clear some chairs over there, please? You guys, clear some chairs, okay? Is there anybody else with this very critical juncture in the middle of our sermon series? Only the Spirit of God can do this work. It's not by our self-effort. Anybody else? Anybody else? For those of you that are up here, I'm going to give this space for you to pray to your Savior, to your Jesus, to your Lord. Whatever it is, He already knows. He's already been dealing with you about it. Go to Him. Go to Him. Give you space. For the rest of us, the worship team is going to lead us in what I think is the perfect response song. Let the song minister to you, and as you feel led, stand. Raise your hand, sit, whatever, and respond to your Jesus this way. Thank you, God, for the work that you're doing and work that you've done. It is only by the power of your mercy and your grace, Jesus, that we can even experience this. Thank you, Lord, that even though we're unworthy, even though we're not deserving, you came down, all the way down, for us, for us. To save us, to redeem us, to cleanse us, and to call us your own. It is by that grace and that mercy of God that we could even come to the cross, Jesus. And we declare this morning that we need you. We declare this morning that we need you. Allow this truth to come alive in our hearts. Come alive in our souls. Again, as the worship team leads, anybody feels like, please come up. Come up and join us. Child of God, he loves you like that. He loves you like that. As we leave this place, um, I want us to leave declaring the truth of who he is. Yes, you've been to that place of saying, God, me, really me. I am unworthy. And Jesus Christ picks you up and says, in me, yes, you, yes, you. And then we begin to realize that the goodness of our God has nothing to do with our circumstances. The goodness of God and our ability to say, God, you are good, has nothing to do with our circumstances and our events. But it has everything to do with the one single event that marked history forever. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died for you and lived the life that you should have lived. And no matter what, and no matter what happens in life, that truth will never change. That cross will always be a reminder to you that indeed our Savior and Lord Jesus is good all the time. And all the time He is good. 
So no benediction today. I want us to leave with this declaration song as we leave. Sing it together, Lord. You are good. You are good.